Chapter 38 had concluded about how David and our Christ had lively enemies that were strong and pleading that God forsake him not with all that he faced in life. And he said, Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. So troubles came. Uh, Troubles were all around. And he said, I have to turn to God. That's where I get the help, the strength, the courage, the faith uh, to move forward and to do the things that need to be done. Because we cannot generate those things just in ourselves. Human will and human desire can do a certain amount. uh, Because we see around us in the world people who are doing a certain amount of good. And they are doing out, essentially, out of human uh, kindness and gentleness and caring. But when it comes to truly working at and overcoming human nature and Satan and the system around us, we can't do it on our own. Uh, in fact, even with God's Spirit, it is at best very difficult. And He even said so. Even when I send the Comforter, you are going to have very trying, distressing, difficult times doing what you're supposed to do. That is just the way life is. And if we try to think anything different, uh, it isn't that way. I've had people say, well, I understand now, and and, uh, I'm under grace. I've said this before, and my life is easy now. And I'm thinking, if you found something that placates you and makes you think that everything is A-OK, and you're not under pressure, and you don't have difficulties, then you're looking in the wrong place. Because God's Word is very clear on what kind of life we would lead on this earth. And there's no escaping it. If we're doing what's right, that's for sure, trying to do what's right. Anyway, he pleads for help there. Then we get into chapter 39. I said, I will take heed to my ways. So he asks for God's help, but then he begins to turn around and say, I need to look at myself. I need to take heed to my ways, that I sin not with my tongue. So when you first start looking at mending your ways or checking your ways, the easiest way, the quickest way, for do you recognize that you are not yet perfect? You know, if you come under the delusion or the illusion that maybe you're okay now. And if you really take stock to try to amend your ways, probably the quickest way to find that you still have faults and problems is to consider your tongue. James says, the tongue no man can tame. It is a very difficult thing to do. He goes on to say, we have rudders to control ships, and a very small part of the ship, by comparison to the overall bulk of the ship, is easy to use to control that ship. But a tongue, it's a small member too, compared to the rest of our body, minuscule in percentage of body weight, and yet it can do more harm probably than any other organ in the body. So quickly, so easily. 
So that I said, I'll take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. So he says, I'm going to have people who are wicked before me, and I'm going to bridle my tongue. That's something we have to do. He, James even used that expression, how you put a bridle in a horse's mouth so that you can control whether he goes left, right, forward, or hold him back. So he used that in getting into the story of the tongue. So I'm sure James was probably referring to Psalm 39.1 when he wrote that about the New Testament church and the problems they were having. Getting a bridle on the tongue to hold it back, to control which way it goes. And it is simply not easy. Uh, you know, there's, there, is, there is, it seems with us, no partition between our brain and our tongue. Just whatever is generated in the brain just comes directly to the tongue and out. Boom. So quickly. And therefore you need to put some restraint between the brain and the tongue. I think sometimes my tongue acts without even the brain involved. I'm not sure. Uh, there must be some connection or it wouldn't work at all, but uh, wow, how easy it is to say things we should not. So, the problems we face are not new by any means, are they? This goes all the way back to David and to Christ. You know, he had to control his tongue throughout his life and he never let it slip once. Uh, that it is unfathomable. It's beyond me. Cannot understand that concept. But he never sinned with his tongue. I was dumb with silence. I held my peace, even from good, and my sorrow was stirred. He says, am I going to have to just shut up and never say anything? Even if there's something good to say, sometimes we're able to take it away even as we say it. You know, as they call it a left-handed compliment. You, you give it a, a compliment or appreciation and you take it away even as you say it. I think we've pretty well, all of us probably uh, perfected that art. And we can do it in jest and in joking and that's fine. But uh, if it's done with a mean spirit, uh, then, and sarcasm and trying to get a dig in, then it is wrong. So he said, sometimes I think I ought to just keep my mouth shut and never say anything. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then spoke I with my tongue. You know, we, we get emotional, we get stirred up, and even though you might say, I'm not going to speak or I'm not going to say anything bad, then the emotions take over, the fire burns, and you have to spit it out. Just like when you get something hot in your mouth and it's too hot, and you spit it out. Sometimes we just can't stop it. Then he says, Eternal, make me to know my end and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. He said, life is so difficult, 
so hard sometimes, I wish I just knew when it was going to end. I think there's a certain amount of despair here uh, in the feelings and emotions that are being uh, projected to us of how easy it is to sin, how hard it is to do what is right. And the tongue is such an incredible example of that. He's he's saying, I I just wish I knew how long I had. Maybe I could hold my tongue if I knew I was only going to live another week or another month or two more years. Maybe I could control this, but I don't know how long it's going to be, and it seems insurmountable that I could control it over a longer period of time. I don't know exactly what was going through his mind here, but he connects length of life with a difficulty that he was having. I don't think we really want to know just how long we're going to live, do we? Uh, That would be very frustrating. Uh, I I can only imagine what those on death row, maybe they're given a sentence and you will die on such and such a date, and then they put in appeals and it's scary, and maybe they get an extension and and another extension, another extension. I... I don't know if I was sitting there, maybe, well, put your own life on the line, maybe not. But I can imagine you'd say, get it over with already. I'm tired of new deadlines on when I'm going to die because that's all I can think about. But there's a certain frustration here with human beings. Behold, you have made my days as a handbreadth, and my age is as nothing before you. Truly, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. And then he says, Selah, pause and think about it. Again, is what that means. We are vain creatures. And no matter how good we might be and how much we might have overcome, our life only lasts so long physically and we die. So it's in that sense, all in vain. No matter what you do or what you accomplish it, you're going to die. The greatest inventors, the greatest politicians, if there's, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? The greatest people <laughs> who have lived have all died. If there is not something beyond this vanity, this roughly 70 years on earth, that we can look to and have for the future, then what good is it? What good is it? Because the same happens to us all. So no matter how good you are, you come to an end, and everything you did is wiped away, and you're quickly forgotten. There are very, very few figures in human history that we remember. How many billions of people have lived on this earth, and how many are even recorded in the history books? Really, just a handful. And some of them weren't as great as they're cracked up to be. Surely every man walks in a vain show. We're vain about our looks, we're vain about our smarts, we're vain about our cars, we're vain about... Any and everything. Human beings find something to be vain about. And even if we know we're not smart, and even if we know we're not good-looking, and even if we know we're not this or that, uh, 
we'll find somebody that we're smarter than or prettier than or whatever it might be, and we will make comparisons until we feel good about ourselves. Or we won't, and then we'll just be depressed and discouraged all the time because we worry and we're frustrated. So we walk in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heaps up riches and knows not who shall gather them. And that's repeated in the New Testament as well. You can live, you can gather things up, and you can write a will. And you can get the smartest lawyers on earth. You can have them draft your will. You can have them write 16 different ways how you want done what is to be done when you die. And in the modern day, some are even putting it on video and talking to their relatives that are all together, and then the lawyer turns on the video, and not only does the lawyer read it to you, but you tell them yourself how you want everything done. And then somebody does it differently anyway. That's just the way that works. You cannot control them when you're here, and you cannot control them when you're gone, no matter how airtight the will might be. If they don't like it enough, they will find, with money, lawyers and judges who will reverse it and take their cut and let you do what you want. That's just the way human life is. So we don't know. We can't control anything. We die then it's all up to God. The bottom line here is this. Everything on this earth is limited to a time span, and in that sense it's vanity or worthless because it will not remain. Therefore, the only thing which can remain is that which has taken spiritual value and meaning that God decides or decides to preserve. That is why we fight ourselves and work day in and day out to do as he would have us do and pray that we have been counted worthy to escape not only the physical things coming soon, but also be offered life eternal. For that, it is worth the effort. Otherwise, we're like everybody else who has no purpose and nothing to look forward to after death. They think heaven or hell, but they don't know. And now eternal, verse 7, what wait I for? What, what is this wait on earth all about? What am I waiting for? My hope is in you. I guess I expressed that before I got to it in that sense. Our hope, our trust, is in God for something better further on down the line than what we have right now. Deliver me from all my transgressions. So he says, my hope is in you. Please forgive me for the things that I do wrong. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. It's so easy for us to destroy so quickly anything good. He says, one fly in the ointment destroys the apothecary there in Proverbs. doesn't take much. You can work so hard to have a good reputation, and you can ruin it in the blink of an eye. I was dumb. I opened not my mouth, because you did it. So, 
Our lives are in God's hands. Things happen good. Things happen bad. But we have left our lives in God's hands. We have committed ourselves to Him. And He, as He says in Isaiah, creates good and evil. He allows things to happen. Remove your stroke away from me. So God strokes us in that sense. He chastens every son he loves. Hebrews 12. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. Well, we pray his chastening be in measure. We pray that he take his stroke or the the, the lashes off of us and forgive us and have mercy on us. Because no matter how hard we try to mend our ways or take heed to our ways, as it said in verse 1, we still wind up having problems, don't we? That's just the way we are. We are so human. When you with rebukes do correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty to consume away like a moth. It doesn't take much. You know, we can begin to think pretty good of ourselves and think, wow, I'm doing good here, I'm doing good there, my right hand and my left hand, what I'm doing good. And uh, it only takes God the blink of an eye to show us how weak, how small, how miserable, how pitiful we really are as human beings. Surely every man is vanity. Again, pause and contemplate that. Meditate on it to realize You know, we we have to get our perspective and our focus right to realize that of ourselves we are nothing and that we need God in our lives in order to become something worthwhile, something worth preserving. Hear my prayer, O Eternal, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with you and a sojourner as all my fathers were. We're called strangers and pilgrims. I think it's in Peter. Uh, Peter or James? That please me for the moment. But we're strangers and pilgrims here on the earth. Ambassadors for Christ, as we've said in the past. We don't belong here. We are walking differently than the people on this earth, aren't we? And we find it's very difficult. If you've traveled at all in your life into various countries, you have had that very uncomfortable feeling that I don't belong here. I could die here. I've had that feeling many, many times. Not knowing the culture that well, not knowing what areas were safe and which ones weren't, and I've wandered into some pretty nasty places, both in the U.S. and abroad. You get that very uncomfortable feeling when people speak a different language, they look differently, they act differently, and you feel truly like a stranger and a pilgrim, and one who is not too secure and safe either, for that matter. And that's the way we really should feel here on this earth, is Satan, or Hellel, as his name truly is, is against us and wants us dead. And he knows who we are by name and by personality. And the culture that he has built around us should be becoming strange to us because we are 
truly citizens of heaven, of God's way. And here we're thrown into a culture and a mix that is totally opposed to God's way. So it should make us feel strange. And we will cry out then, Hear my prayer, O thou eternal, as we sing. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. He tells us in Isaiah to beseech him continually and give him no rest until he answers this prayer that David and Christ were praying. These same emotions and feelings that you and I have, they had. We look for deliverance. For I am a stranger with you and a sojourner, as my fathers were. Abraham, he said, was a stranger and a sojourner, looking for a city that he had to go find. Oh, spare me, that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Sometimes life seems very difficult and like it can't go on if I don't have help. We can get discouraged very easily because we look at ourselves, we look at the plight of the world, we look at what is going on and realize that things are coming apart on this earth and we need strength from God. Going to chapter 40. I waited patiently for the eternal. Remember how Habakkuk got upset got frustrated, began to question God, and then he finally said, I think I'd better shut up and sit on my watch and wait for God. So there's a lot of frustration expressed here in Psalm 39. And then the next thought is, I think I better sit back and wait for God. You and I suffer with the same dynamics. We're in a world that is fast deteriorating. We're in a church that is coming apart at the seams. I mean, the old worldwide church of God. And we are in danger ourselves of coming apart at the seams. That's why he says, blessed are those who endure to the end. And the reason he said that is because it would not be easy to endure. The things we face are difficult. If I get to chapter 42 here, which I think I shall, I want to give some background on that and pursue that thought some more. Because we're opening a new, the second book of the Psalms there, and it has some of the thoughts here that I'm beginning to formulate that I I want to get to in detail there. Anyway, I waited patiently for the Eternal, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He's there. He hears. He hasn't yet turned his face to us, but he hears our cry. And he says, don't give him any rest. Keep crying out that he will hear us, and the time will come when he will turn. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. Well, he took us out of the pit and the miry clay that destroys people on this earth, and he set us upon the rock Christ uh, so that we might escape those who are being pulled down in quicksand in a satanic culture. He's put a new song in my mouth. Well, he's going to give us a new song, he says in Revelation, that no man knows but the 144,000. No one can sing it 
but then. And we already can sing a song that no one else really understands, can't we? When we sing those hymns and understand the plan of salvation, sing these very psalms, which we just went by a verse that is in that hymn book, about three verses back, nobody grasps and understands what we do, those who are in the church of God. So it's already a new song that nobody else on earth understands. Do we realize sometimes that as a partaker in the New Covenant, which most people don't understand either, even though they claim to, they don't understand the conditions of the New Covenant. They know there is one, and they assume they're under it, and that it frees them from all obedience to God and anything righteous you have to do because grace covers all. They don't understand the covenant whatsoever. They don't know the new song that we sing, looking forward to a time when there is a fulfillment of this plan of God that we understand, and we'll sing a newer song, a better song, a bigger song then than the ones we sing now. But when these songs were written, they were a new song, pretty much, were they not? And preserved for us. The mysteries of the kingdom of God are revealed through these songs. Much understanding of the new covenant can be grasped through reading the Psalms. Because David was a man of God's own heart, and he had God's spirit and said, don't take it from me. And therefore, he understood far more than anyone else in all Israel, far more than almost any of the billions of people that lived on the earth, save perhaps Abraham and Moses and a few others who wrote the Bible. Put a new song in my mouth, a new song in our heart, even praise to our God. And most people don't even know our God, our Father the true God. Even though they claim to be Christian, they still don't know God. Even as Christ told the Pharisees, you don't know God. And they didn't. The Apostle John, after Christ had lived, died, and been resurrected, came almost down to 100 A.D., and he said very clearly, if you say that the commandments are done away and you don't keep the commandments of God, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. And we have a whole world of Protestants out here who don't keep the commandments of God, who say they are done away, and they say they're Christians and they belong to God in the New Covenant, but unknown to them, they are liars and the truth is not in them. They don't know the truth. And it's sad. Now, they will one day. I'm not condemning them. I'm not judging them. Only God can judge. And we need to understand that today is not their day of judgment. Theirs will come in the great white throne judgment, or if perchance they live into the millennium, their judgment will come then. Judgment is now on you and me. We are being judged right now. 
those Protestants whose state of mind that I am discussing are not under judgment because they do not know the truth. And it is not a, a lie of intent. It is a lie of not knowing and therefore spouting out that which you do not understand and you think it's true. And it is not because of Satan's great deception. But that deception will be moved or removed and they will have their opportunity later. So, I'm not coming down on the Protestants, please understand that, or the Catholics or the Hindus or anybody else. Today is not their judgment. They just simply do not know. Now, if I'm going to come down on anybody, who does it need to be? You and me. Because judgment is now on spiritual Israel, the church. We're the ones that need to be cried aloud to at this point, not those people who will have their opportunity later. They're not having it now. If you're not called, you cannot understand. That's what he said. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So we have the new song. Blessed is the man that makes eternal his trust and respects not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Don't pay any attention to that which is around us. Look to God. Look to His Word. Many, O Eternal, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts which are toward us. Now we pray, and sometimes it seems like we're talking to a, a ceiling and don't get much of an answer. Well, that's because of the conditions we're in at the moment and that he has spewed us out and he is not paying or he is not answering many of the things that we want answered right now. That does not mean that he does not hear us. His thoughts to us are wonderful thoughts. He wants to give us his kingdom, but he wants us to learn some lessons first. He wants to bless us now, but he wants us to learn some things first. So we, in that sense, not in time, but in attitude, hold back our Father from giving us the things we want to have because of our thoughts and our conduct. He still counts our hair. He still cares that much about us. Many good thoughts toward us. They cannot be reckoned up in order to you. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. So God's thoughts of us are beyond our comprehension. Cannot be numbered. He loves us that much. We hold Him back. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire... Jeremiah 7.22, he didn't speak to them of sacrifices when they came out of Egypt. He added that later because of transgression. He did not want animal sacrifices, doesn't want them again. There are going to be some in the millennium. There may even be some in the latter temple as an example to the world of the way the millennium will be. They're not for us. He doesn't want us killing bulls and 
sheep and goats and doves for our sins and transgressions. We have Christ's sacrifice. He doesn't desire that kind of sacrifice. He wants living sacrifice, Romans 12.1, from you and me. My ears have you opened. Burn offering and sin offering have you not required. He opened our ears to understand. I delight to do your will, O my God. Yes, your law is written within, or your law is within my heart. He does tell us to write it there. Though David understood God's law, and much of what he wrote, Christ lived, much of what he wrote is quoted again and again in the New Testament over and over. If you pay attention to it, it may not be expressed exactly the same way, but it's certainly paraphrased in the New Testament. It has been said about, what is it, a third of the New Testament is direct quotes from the Old, or almost direct quotes. So, out of, and probably more quotes from Psalms than anywhere else. So, David, a man after God's own heart, a man with the Spirit of God, had the will of God in his heart, the law of God in his heart. So, what did Christ say? Not one jot or one tittle of the law is done away, it's all still in effect. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O eternal, you know. So David did not realize to what extent he was speaking to the great congregation, did he? He was writing this down about some of the things he had said to Israel as king. But he's saying it to spiritual Israel now, way beyond his death. The Word of God was written by David for us today. I have not hid your righteousness within my heart. It wasn't just you and me, Lord. It wasn't his personal religion. What he knew, what he understood, he tried to help others understand. (coughs) And he wrote it down. And thankfully, this very day, this very hour, He's helping us to better understand God. He only lived 70 years, almost on the dot. Didn't live a long time on the earth, but the time he lived was a very powerful time and very powerful for us today. He wanted to share it. He didn't pray, my Father in heaven. He prayed, our Father. We're in this together. You know, we have a real challenge here, don't we, being in this together? God has assembled, let's use our little group, there are other groups in the church, but let's use ours, we're familiar with it, and we need to see God in our lives, not necessarily look for it in others, but we need to find Him in ours. Because if He isn't in ours, it doesn't matter about the others either, does it? So, he called together a group of people here in this group, and I certainly believe that he did that. By name, he put us together. And we are from all different walks of life. We are from all kinds of different backgrounds and cultures, north, south, east, west, foreign, whatever. 
And he said, I want to assemble you as a body. So he brought all the parts here from various places. And he said, now, I want you to be the body of Christ. Or one example of the body of Christ through this group of pieces and parts. Now you take that many different parts with different histories and backgrounds and pasts and try to weld them, meld them together into one body, and I dare say you are going to have problems. You've worked puzzles, have you not? Where you have this big pile of pieces in a box, and you sit down, and they're all different shapes, they're painted different colors, and you're supposed to assemble that puzzle into a beautiful picture of some kind. And it takes time, effort, and energy to put a puzzle together and to take these body parts and try to bake them into a smoothly functioning body rather than a bunch of dysfunctional parts is not easy. And seeing how each and every piece and part here fits together to make a whole is very difficult to do. And it seems like you have too many of this kind of parts or too many of that kind of parts and not enough of these parts. How does it all go together? That is the challenge that God has laid before us. That we are to love one another enough that we can fit together to form a functional family. And today... We are somewhat functional, and yet we are somewhat dysfunctional. We do not always function as a body the way we ought to. Sometimes we do. We need to make it more often. We need to make it function better. We need a healthy body, a strong body, where all the parts work together in perfection so that we don't stumble, we don't fall, we don't make mistakes, we get the job done. Now, God called us here and committed us to this, did He not? We committed to it by assembling ourselves, and therefore we have to follow through. It is easy to become bifurcated. It is easy to split. It is easy to give up. It is easy not to do our part. But you see, a body like this has parts that don't fit together very well. So now what do you do? You have to shape the parts. So that they do fit together. That's why we hone one another, iron sharpening iron, to use another example. And we whittle on ourselves 
and whack on ourselves and work on ourselves until we become parts that fit together beautifully. That takes a lot of work. Now, you can use the example of wood or metal in trying to build something of parts that aren't all the right lengths, the right sizes, the right shapes to go together. So what do you have to do? You have to measure them, mark them, cut them, sand them, bend them to make the parts all the right sizes so that the building or the box or whatever you're building will all fit together and be harmonious and work. Do we understand the challenge we have before us? Now, it's easy for us to become frustrated with each other because we don't always fit together right. So then the responsibility is to get together and work together to see what doesn't fit, figure out how to make it fit, and then do the cutting or sawing or sanding or whatever is necessary to get it where it does fit. And you have to be together and work together to even come to know what doesn't fit and why. Therefore, we have to have shared experiences. Truly, no man is an island, no man stands alone. God called us to fit together as family. And for the most part, He called people when He was doing the calling and worldwide. Most of the calling was done then, a little bit now, not much. He caused us to leave, father, mother, brother, sister. He caused us to leave relatives and friends. He brought us into a new understanding and injected us into a family of believers, if you will. And most of that family of believers now, for one reason or another, spiritually died or are very spiritually sick, and the church has fallen apart. Now, he said, I didn't like the way you operated as a family. I've blown you apart, and now in little groups... Let's start over, people, and let's get it better this time. We do not dare, brethren, ignore one another, bypass one another, pick out whom we don't like. If there's someone you don't care for, you have a responsibility to see why you do not fit together with that person. And it isn't all them. I'll guarantee you. It's a two-sided coin. If we are to be a functional body, we cannot pick and choose which parts of the body we want to associate with and them only. Now, the lips and the nose are closer together than some parts of the body. The nose and the toes are separated by quite a bit. 
So there are some parts of the body that you will, by nature, tend to work closer with and to. But you can't ignore the rest. Stub your toe and see how quickly the whole body reacts. It is not disassociated. It is not disconnected whatsoever. It's there. All it takes is a hangnail, for that matter, and the whole body hurts. Now, God said in 1 Corinthians 12, that's the way it's supposed to be. But we're here to work together and to learn to do so. And if we do not accomplish that, if we do not work on that, we are not doing the job that God called us here to accomplish. He chose the parts. Now, you may look at some and say, I don't know why he chose that part. And sometimes we look at ourselves and say, I can't understand why he chose me. Well, he was looking for weak and base. Let us never forget. And he put a whole bunch of those together and says, I want you to fix the base, and I want you to fix the weak, and I want you to help each other do that very thing. That is our calling. That is our purpose. Now, you might have chosen a bunch of different parts if you had gone to the parts store. But God did the choosing. You didn't. I didn't. In fact, I didn't even know anything. I wasn't even planning on building a body here. I thought there were plenty of church bodies, plenty of groups. I had no intention of starting another one. But man, there's plenty out there already. Why do I need one? And then people started calling. Came to the feast and they said, well, we want you to be our pastor. Okay, I'll do that. But it wasn't something I intended to do or desired or was looking to do. Marla and I would have kept the feast that year by ourselves in Zion. That's what we would have done. And then you showed up, some of you. Some who showed up that time are gone now. They did not, for whatever reasons, fit themselves in to the body in the way that they needed to and were called to do. And that's sad. God is replacing some of them with other parts to see if he can get them to stand on themselves and shape themselves to fit. So let us not ignore or find an excuse for not working together to make ourselves fit with everyone here. And it is a challenge. Now, it's easy for me to stand here and say this. It's very difficult for us to accomplish it. Look how hard it is for you to change. So very hard. Human beings, except under extreme, extreme circumstances, tend to change very slowly. And we need to be very understanding and patient with one another because other people have just as much trouble changing as we do. And we all have changing to do. But let us not think for a moment that we stand alone. Let us shoulder the responsibility that has been laid before us to somehow fit all these parts together in a well-functioning, smoothly working body. 
If there are rifts, if there are difficulties, if there are attitudes, they need to change. Not be ignored, not swept under the rug, not ranted and raved about, but worked on together to get the job done. I have seen a great deal of misuse of Matthew 18 over the decades. People think somehow it gives them the right to go chew somebody out. You sinned against me and you better repent. That's not the spirit with which that was written at all. We are to love those who do things evil to us, or might be in this sense, in one sense, an enemy. We're to do good to them. Matthew 18 says, Go that you may gain your brother, not make him repent, but gain him so that the feelings of love and closeness and harmony can be regained and retained, or if they were never there, accomplished. That is the spirit of Matthew 18. It is not a club. And anyone who uses it for a club does not understand what it's all about and needs to reread it and think about the approach and the reason it was written. When two or three are gathered in his name, people use as a way to start a new church. And that's not what that's talking about. It's talking about individuals coming together to resolve a problem and have close brotherhood and sisterhood regained and retained. Blessed are the peacemakers. I have seen no scripture that said blessed are the hammers. I'm going to hammer somebody the way they need to be. We have to make peace one with another. That's what it's all about. Peace and fitting together in harmony. And I don't care how far back your problems may go. You were called here to change those and to be closer together here than you are with any of your blood family who are not in the church of God. I'm going to keep pounding that concept, I think, until we get it. We will put down and hurt members of the family of God and put family members who are unconverted ahead of them. That's why Christ said, you need to be willing to put aside father, mother, brother, sisters, brothers, children, and come love my family. You are not choosing the parts. God chose the parts. And you did not come here without God bringing you here. Take comfort, take strength in that but also shoulder the responsibility of that.
I have not hid your righteousness within my heart. He was reaching out. We must reach out one to another and help one another, strengthen one another in every way we possibly can to make this a functioning body. Now, why is it that God says when a wolf comes into the flock and begins to rip and tear the sheep, that the shepherds are to get rid of the wolves? Now, I think sometimes, and I apologize if it be the case, I have been a little too patient with some wolves who have come and tried to destroy this flock. And I should have torn their teeth and tail out a long time before I did, maybe. And they've chewed on you and stated and spouted all kinds of negative stuff. And thankfully, you've been strong enough to ward it off for the most part. But it's my responsibility to see that you don't get chewed on. And then if I do start taking that responsibility, I sometimes get criticized for, well, you should be patient. You should be merciful. Well, I should. But at the same time, your protection and your ability to function as a flock has to be maintained. I try, brethren, to bend over backward to be patient and merciful, even with wolves or those who could be wolves that we're not sure it's hard to tell with an initial teeth and tail check exactly what they are because they wear sheep's clothing and try to act like they're sheep when they're wolves. It's not always easy to detect. And I'll guarantee you this. I've needed enough patience and I've needed enough mercy and enough of God's forgiveness in my life to this day but I want to be sure that I am merciful and forgiving and not kicking people away or taking them away too quickly. I'd rather err on that side than having the swift kick. That's how I think. Because I need all the mercy I can get. And so do you. So we have to sometimes wait for the fruits, to see whether it's good fruit or bad on a tree, or if it's a sheep or a wolf in sheep's clothing. We have to wait until we can see the teeth and the tail for sure. But when that time comes, I must do something about it for your sake. We must keep the flock together and it needs to be able to operate in peace and safety and security without being gnawed on by those who are full of negativity and disbelief and criticism and ranting and raving and whatever else form it takes. We have a job to do, again using the analogy of the family, to grow together until all the pieces fit well. God knew for a fact when he called you and me and all these people here and those on the phone lines together, that we would not fit together in peace and harmony without a lot of work and a lot of whittling. He knew it ahead of time. So he said, all right, 
There's the puzzle. There's the pieces. There's the parts. Start putting it together. There's the challenge. And you've already accepted it. You've already committed to it. Now we need to live up to our commitment until we can be what we are to be, to live together in love and closeness and harmony. Now, I'm not saying we don't. We do, to one degree or another. But let's not kid ourselves that it is always peaceful and harmonious, because it isn't. And somebody will say, well, you guys don't have any love. Yes, we do. We don't have enough. I'll go along with that. We'll probably never have enough. But we got some. Where did it come from? It came from God in heaven. He put us together, and He has given us a certain amount of His love, or we wouldn't be here. I'll guarantee you that. So let's not let people put us down. We have some love. We have some harmony. We have some closeness. We just need more. Who would argue that? We all need more. I do, you do. Every one of us need more. So let's not be judgmental and critical of one another. Let's just help each other grow. And I think that is one of our problems, is that we read this book, and it is a very high standard that God sets. And it becomes a problem with our own egos. We don't want to admit that we don't live up to it all the time. We know better, you know better, everybody knows better. None of us live up to this book in the way that God intended. And we're all willing to admit that. Well, I'm not perfect. But if somebody points out how you're not perfect, you get upset. We will accept it as a general thought, but not as a specific problem. And then our vanity and ego gets in the way. And we would all like to think that we're what we ought to be. And we all fall short. And it is easy then to become critical of one another because we see around us people who do not meet every word of God in their lives. None of us do. So... We can point out the differences, we can point out how we don't fit together, and we can be critical and judgmental of each other because, well, you just don't quite fit with me, for whatever reasons. And then push them away because we're not enough alike to fit together. No. You go to that person, you work with that person, you set your egos and your vanity aside and in humility, admit your problem and why you don't fit with them instead of saying, they don't fit me. If we all say, they don't fit me, nobody's ever going to learn to fit. Okay? It all comes down to humility and meekness. Being willing to set our vanities and our ego aside... Both admit we could be part of the problem and then work together. 
Now, I could have you march up here. I could stand back and I could have you march up here. And there is not one of you here who could not look out over this group of people and point out a multitude of ways that you have not fit, or that they have not fit together with you. We could gripe and grieve until sundown next Sabbath. Couldn't we? And what good would it do? Would it make us fit together better? Or would it drive us further apart if we pointed out how each of you do not fit me, the speaker, whichever one you happen to be, as you let your feelings be known? So, pointing out the flaws of other people does what? It makes the parts fit together less well rather than better. So criticizing one another, putting each other down, pointing out faults with each other does not help any of us function better. It just makes us more dysfunctional. So let us check our egos. Let us be humble and meek and admit that maybe I need sanding on, not just you. I need cut, not just you, to make me fit better with you. We all have to do that. We cannot withdraw ourselves and just pray to God and hide our righteousness within our heart and proclaim how patient we are with these sinners around us. I have not refrained my lips, O Eternal. You know. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. Look to God, His faithfulness and His salvation, because it is the Spirit of God that is going to prove provide the glue to fit all these parts together. They have to be fitted first, and then as they come to fit, they have to be glued together by experience, by interacting with one another, by coming to know and to love each other better. God's Spirit will then become glue to draw us together, to hold us together, instead of to drive us apart when little problems come up. When problems come up, it shows the pieces don't all fit yet. Now, where do you need to do the most work rather than ignoring? Where the parts fit the least. That's where the most work needs to be done. You know what we tend to do? We tend to find somebody that we think fits pretty good with us and we'll kind of sand on each other just a wee bit because we already fit together pretty good. But then if there's somebody that we don't seem to fit together with at all or not very well or there are problems, whatever, we tend to get together with them less. We tend to work on ourselves along with them less. And if we could ignore them entirely, we might. 
So it is only a very superficial, hi, how are you, relationship. Aren't we that way? We'll procrastinate and put off the bigger jobs that need done and work on the little ones. We got on a list, A, B, C's, and D's. What do most people do? They'll work on the D's. It's quick, it's easy, fix that. The A's, you have to work yourself up to that. The biggest problems, the biggest projects, the hardest ones, the ones that take the most effort, those we tend to put off. We procrastinate. The same is true here in fitting these parts together. Verse 11, Withhold not you your tender mercies from me, O Eternal. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have compassed me about. My iniquities have taken hold upon me, so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Maybe there's why God has to count the hair on our head. Because it seems like our iniquities and our problems and our troubles are greater than the number of hairs we have on our head. <clears throat> Therefore, we get discouraged and our heart fails us. Be pleased, O Eternal, to deliver me. O Eternal, make haste to help me. Well, he had the same difficulties we do. It seemed like God wasn't going to intervene. God wasn't going to help. God wasn't going to solve the other problems or the problems. It's easy for us to get in that same attitude, isn't it? Where are all these people to date? Where are the potential mates? Why is everybody getting old and dying? Why do we have the problems we have? Make haste, O Eternal, to help us. Deliver us in time of need. Now, if it hadn't been long enough and hadn't been difficult enough, he wouldn't be writing that. All his problems weren't solved right away. He had to deal with them, had to live with them. Now, we can look at ourselves and we can start throwing pity parties as regularly as we wish about my plight and my situation and my problems and on and on and on. And we can go, get so within ourselves that our lives are nothing but frustration. When you're giving, when you're loving, when you're helping others, you don't have time to feel sorry for yourself. But we tend to like to feel sorry for ourselves. Now, I've given us today, or David did, I didn't. All I've done is elucidate a bit. A huge challenge here. Well, I don't have a mate. Well, you've got family parts here. You've got lots of them. Thank God we're small. What if we're a thousand or twelve thousand of us? And they all had to fit together. Maybe we need to be thankful we're small. And maybe instead of feeling sorry for ourselves because we don't have this or that or the other thing that you think you need, you get busy helping home parts. The parts God has given us, not the ones that He has not yet provided. 
difficult, I know. It's hard to keep our minds off ourselves and our supposed needs and wants. But there are a lot of people here with needs and wants. And we need to help each one of them. Take it as an individual responsibility to help everyone here, excluding no one, to be all they can be, to be as much like God as they can get. That's our responsibility toward each other. And why doesn't God give me the part that I want? The mate, maybe. Well, maybe he wants to see you develop the skills to make some of these strange parts here fit together before he'll give you that which you so desire that you think you would fit with so well. Now, I'll guarantee anybody here in this room that's married or been married knows that all those parts don't fit together all that well either. They have to be worked on day in and day out, week after week, month after month, lest divorce rear its ugly head. It is that way with human beings. So God has given you almost unlimited opportunity here. Oh yeah, he's got his rose-colored glasses on today. No, God has given us almost unlimited opportunity here to learn how to get along with people so that if and when he sent some little old sweet thing along, or big old whatever thing that you think you need, you could get along with them. You have an incredible opportunity to learn to get along with all types of people right here and now. When we're unmarried, we think, I am going to have a wonderful relationship. And we have no clue how to make one of those work. But we think it'll just happen. Mr. Wright or Miss Wonderful will we'll just get along. Oh, this is made in heaven. Well, you and I were made in heaven too. Look at us. If you think two people fit together that easily, you've got a lot to learn. Just try getting along with everybody in this little community and see how it goes. I'd like a report next week. We've got a big job ahead of us, brethren. We're not going to get through many psalms today. I don't know how I got here. But just something David said brought all this together of the responsibility and opportunity we have. Now, if we can't make these parts fit together harmoniously, then why would God want to give us health and life and dear feet, dear legs? Why would He want to send us mates if we can't get along with what we got right here? Think about it. Show God that you can learn how to build the right kind of relationship with everybody here. Then see what He does. Wait patiently on Him. Don't withhold your tender mercies. I've got innumerable evils, just like the hairs on my head. 
Can't even count my faults. Well, we need to quit counting other people's faults then and try to help them. Not criticize them, but help them. Because I'll guarantee you, everybody here needs help. We all need help to be what we ought to be. And we're the only ones here to help each other. We can't call in somebody else to help us. God said, all right, I'm throwing you all all in this pot. Now I'm going to stew you until all the flavors fit together. A thousand analogies we could use. You haven't learned to cook until you learn to blend flavors. Until we blend all these favors, flavors into something that tastes good to God when he samples it, we haven't got the job done. And to get flavors together as a cook takes some skill, knowing which flavors and how to put them together, what fits well, not too much of this, not too much of that, enough of this. You know how it is. Same with human beings. And we don't have the best ingredients, do we? That's the other problem. We just got a bunch of misfits, weak in base. Now, how are you going to cook something up out of this mess? Some of those cooking shows, man, they give them some weird things to put together. Then they give them 30 minutes to get the job done. <laughs> I don't know how much time God's given us, but we've got some strange parts here that have got to fit together, brethren. So let's get to work on it. Be pleased, O eternal, deliver me. Make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and confounded together that seek after my soul to destroy it. Let them be driven backward and put to shame that wish me evil. Well, David said, those that would try to destroy me, that would try to diminish me, those who would try to discourage me or frustrate me, get rid of them. Let's deal with people who will be positive and try to help. Let them be desolate for a reward of their shame that say to me, Aha, aha, I know your problem. I see your difficulty. I know your sins. I've got you figured out. That kind of people we don't need. That kind of attitudes we don't need. we got enough problems without that. People pointing the finger at each other. It's easy to do. Hey, look at this bunch. It's so easy to go down the line and see problems. Biggest one standing right in front of you. It's easy. Not hard at all. Find some redeeming things that can be honed and polished. <clears throat> Even in the people you dislike the most around here. You've got to learn to fit together with them to make this body work. That's all there is to it. That requires work, it takes change, it takes change of attitude, it takes change of heart and mind. Now, am I just talking to hear my head rattle, brethren? Is this, am I doing any good? Why don't I just quit today? I'm done. What more can be said? You going to go to potluck now and forget everything? 
Or is this Word of God going deep in your soul and your heart, and you're going to go home and you're going to pray diligently to find a way to cause the parts you don't seem to fit with work. Otherwise, I'm wasting my breath. David penned these things all those thousands of years ago, and it's worthless. Unless we are not hearers, but doers of the Word. Let all those that seek you rejoice and be glad in you. So he says, if you're going to be a skeptic, if you're going to be negative, if you're going to try to put down, David says, just go away. But if you want to seek God, rejoice and be glad in Him. Let such as love your salvation say continually, always on their lips, the eternal be magnified, glorified, worshipped, exalted. But I am poor and needy. I am. If we don't recognize and have humility and meekness ourselves, we'll never learn to fit together with others properly. Because every one of us has warts that need polished off, sanded off, cut off. Not you are poor and needy. I am. Yet the Eternal thinks upon me. As poor and needy, as weak and base, as futile as we might be, God thinks about us. He counts our hair. He knows our names. He knows our very thoughts. He ponders our hearts. You, each of you in this room, is well known to God. He knows you inside and out better than you know yourself, by far. He can pretty well predict what you're going to say or do because he has a track record and he knows that it's going to continue that way unless somehow, some way, it changes. And he has put us here to help each other make those changes and work together because there is a powerful end-time work that you have been called to do. Hear me? We have been called here to do an end-time work. We were at once called to help do a calling work under Herbert Armstrong. We are now being worked with, and God is doing choosing for those whom He will use to build His latter temple and to finish God's work for this age on this earth in the next few short years. And He has called you to be part of it and to do it. Let us accept our calling. And if we are going to do a work together that God has called us here to do, we must work well together. We must not have arguments and fights and personality conflicts that prevent us. We must 
fix them. All of them. I am poor and needy, but the Eternal thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O my God. Help us now. We need your help now. We think we have nothing to do. If you've been listening today, we have a lot to do. You think we're in a holding pattern because prophecies are not coming to pass as fast as we'd like and the gathering hasn't occurred and you don't have somebody to marry yet or you don't have this or you don't have that or whatever it is you think you need. A healthier body, a better mind, whatever it is you think you lack. Is that the problem? We're just sitting here and getting frustrated because we seemingly aren't moving forward and doing anything. Oh, my. We have so much to do. Just what we've talked together here is a lifetime process to get a body to function properly. We have a challenge higher than the skies right here today to accomplish. And unless and until we do... How could God use us to do a work? How can it move forward when we hold it back with our attitudes toward each other? God help us learn to love one another in the way that He intended. The ball is in our court.